I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Greed, deception, abuse of power, that's no plan. They, they just gatekeep knowledge, you know, they're, they're to total masters of deception. They manipulate everything. You know, these, these pricks at the hell that lie to us. It's... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. They're, they're setting it up for the Great Deception. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all revolves around the Great Deception. Yeah, right? it, bingo. And L.A. and I talked about that. I said, L.A., is this the Great Deception? And he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. For well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. The world needs a wake-up call. We're going to phone it in. And welcome to another episode of the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. I have an interesting uh, subject matter that came across uh, my eyes the other day, and I had never seen it before. Um, and it's about a hundred years ago. Again, something that seems pretty significant in the broader picture of today. Um, it impacts not only, you know, it dabbles in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. It dabbles in the issues of Israel and Palestine. Um, and it dabbles in the notion of propaganda. And we're seeing a lot of it these days uh, in the news, in social media, in marketing campaigns, uh, companies, right? You're seeing all this virtue signaling nowadays. And there's something driving that, right? That's not organic. Um, and what we'll see here is this is a play that happens over and over again. And now... What we're going to talk about is a touchy subject to a lot of people. And I am not questioning the 6 million number here. That's not the intention of this. What this purpose of this podcast is to do is to call out the fact that there's more to the 6 million number than we've been told. And, and that's important because... You know, to throw a number out there like that, that's significant. And to not be able to be questioned on it, oh man, that's, you know, that that's tough. But we're not, we're not going to question the number. What we're going to question is, why would this same number be brought up hundreds of times 
prior to World War II. In the 1800s, there was mentions of it. So this wasn't a World War II idea. And the Holocaust wasn't a World War II idea. It actually was a, the fruits of World War I. So we're going to get into this. And, and some people are, you know, going to shut it off. And that's fine. More power to you. If you can't listen, that's fine. But some of you are going to sit through this. And it's going to be fascinating. Because it connects a lot of the spider webs here. And one of the things I'm going to preface this by saying is, please go listen to the Wicked Planet podcast. My buddy Ron from New England and Buckley and Anonymous Sean, they're doing a series right now. Uh, I think they're calling it From Babylon and Beyond. But they did an episode a couple weeks ago called Cancel Culture, or Current Cancel Culture, Stray Monkeys, The Club of Rome, and Origins of the Cabal to Understand the Difference. Okay, and the origins of the cabal and why you have to listen to that because they do a great breakdown of the difference between Hebrews and Jews. And that difference is quite significant. And that ties into this as well. So what I'm going to reference tonight is and, and, and go check out. They're doing a whole series on this and they're going to supposedly go all the way back to Babylon. So this is going to be a long one, and they are not just touching the surface. They're going pretty deep. So go check out the Wicked Planet podcast. They're doing some great work over there. So now, what, what do I have here? Well, all of a sudden, I, I got this video that uh, somebody sent me on uh, DM and Instagram, and it was all about these newspaper articles from like 1900 that were talking about six million Jews possibly being exterminated. And I was like, wow, I've never heard of this. So, uh, you know, my OCD self started digging into it and I just started finding more and more and more articles. And then I found this book by uh, Don Hedesheimer and it's called The Surprising Origin of the Six Million Figure. And this book is fascinating. Again, it has nothing to do with questioning the Holocaust or anything that happened in World War II. But what it is going to do is show you all of the things that happened in uh, prior to, in the early 1900s, in World War I, in not only Europe, but worldwide, and how it all ties in. And it's almost like this was a, a script they were playing off of. Um, but let's, let's dive into it because, you know, we haven't, I never heard of the quote unquote first Holocaust that we're going to look into tonight. And, and what that is, is when they say the first Holocaust, that's all these newspaper articles that were claiming famines and, you know, starvation that was going to happen to massive numbers of Jews. And the number 6 million kept coming up. 5 million, 6 million. So we're not talking about small pockets. They're talking about mass extinction here. And it doesn't seem that any of it ever came to fruition during that time. However, then you have World War II where there you know, was the real quote-unquote Holocaust, okay, where they murdered by gas chambers and executions. And that's a whole different animal in itself. So 
you know, I, I was like, okay, let's go dig into this. So what I do, I went into the Congress um, search engine of the, you know, like historical newspapers and things like that. And, uh, and I was able to pull up from 1836 to 1922. I Googled 6 million Jews. Okay. And, and, and both writing it out and then the number. And there was over 270 cases of 6 million Jews showing up between 1836 and 1922. And I'm like, what is this? I've never even heard of it. And then you know, I started digging a little more and then you get it up to like 2016 and there was like 278 entries. So I was like, man, this, you know, this is crazy. How come we've never heard about this? So in, in, in Don's book, he goes, he, he recommends this, uh, book that you can go get out in the archives. So I went, uh, you know, went and downloaded it and it's called 6 million open gates. And, uh, what it has is it has 240 media items from 1900 to 1945 uh, that talk about the 6 million. And uh, so, you know, as we start looking into it, it's like it doesn't, I, I never heard about this. So what are we going to do here? We're going to keep digging. This is what we do. And um, so we start looking at it and you start seeing all these different terms throwing around like extinction, holocaust, starvation, uh, epidemics, you know, persecution, and all these giant numbers being thrown around in these newspaper articles from all over the world. New York Times has a lot of them, but all over the country too in the United States. Um, and so, I mean, I, I highly recommend going and looking at 6 million open gates because you can see the majority of them right there. Um, and he has, you know, the source material, he upgraded it a little bit and touched it up, but it's in there. So, and what you start to see is the word Holocaust show up. And we're like, I, I you know, I assumed I always associated Holocaust with World War Two, And, and that's true. But what, what, what we find out here is that, no, this goes all the way back to World War One, And they were saying that, you know, this is going to be the greatest tragedy the world has ever known. And, and everybody's going to need to know about it. Well, it's interesting because, you know, uh, there was this gentleman named Jacob Schiff, and we'll get into him because he's tied into a lot of things like the Federal Reserve, like taxes, like the Balfour Declaration, all of these things, this man, and he's a big time banker, okay, tied in with JP Morgan and Rockefellers and the Warburgs and all those great characters of the late 18 and early 1900s. And he was adamant about calling for an end to the term Holocaust, right? Up until 1917. Because what happened in 1917? That's when they put out the Balfour Declaration, okay? So, but in 1919, the American Hebrew magazine used the word Holocaust to describe like the European, the, the plight of the European Jew and, and it, it did so under the, the former governor in New York state, uh, Yehuda Bauer. She wrote in My Brother's Keeper, okay, 
The destruction of European Jewry during World War II has obliterated the memory of the first Holocaust of the 20th century in the wake of the First World War. So she's still claiming that there was this um, first Holocaust of the 20th century for the First World War. Okay? So, and this is, you know, from her book, My Brother's Keeper. And then there's another passage, a book from World War I entitled The Holocaust of War. And, you know, there's one of the chapters of it mentions World War I and, and the post-war fundraising efforts, you know, and all the money they were raising to help all these, you know, uh, Jews that were in trouble. And one of the quotes in the book said, as the armies rolled back and forth in desperate conflict over borders of Poland, Galatia, and East Prussia, terror, desolation, and death descended on the civilian population in general, but most upon the 7 million Jews. The Christian Poles, Ruthenians, and uh, Germans suffered the inevitable hardships that attend all warfare, but the Jews, already prescribed by the Russians and Poles, met with the concentrated orgy of hatred, bloodlust, and vindictive opportunity that threatened to wipe them out in one vast holocaust. Okay, now that's World War I we're talking. So I was like, okay, if World War I, why, are they, why, why is this number 6 million so significant if it keeps coming up over and over again? And that's my, you know, mind, the way my mind works. I keep seeing it over and over. Let's go find out what it means. So what I found on a couple different sites, I haven't been able to really verify it, um, but I've seen some quotes and things like that. But it says an ancient Jewish prophecy had promised the Jews their return to the promised land after a loss of six million of their people. So one of the quotes I found is Jewish prophecies in the Torah require that six million Jews must vanish before the state of Israel can be formed. You shall return minus six million. And they say that's why um, Tom Segev, an Israeli historian, uh, declared that the sacred six million is an attempt to transform the Holocaust story into a state religion. So, you know, those... What he's saying is those six million, they had to die. You know, they had to perish in order for the Jewish state to be. And he, he even goes on to say in, in a quote, without the Holocaust, there would be no Jewish state. Um, and that's okay. That's fair. I mean, that definitely there was definitely a correlation between the Holocaust and them getting land in Palestine. Uh, but here's another interesting thing. It's called the Guzma. It's, it's a rabbinical concept, which is used to express the scale of a catastrophe or a Shoah. Or, you know, the number of Jews who have suffered and or died, okay, in, in terms to the related tales of the Torah. So, Guzma relies on the Talmud Bavli. Now, I don't know this. This is all new to me. Insofar as it calculates the extent of a Shoah or catastrophe by taking the number of Jews the Bavli says came out of Egypt with Moses in the Torah, which is 600,000, then multiplies it by a number to express how serious and awful Shoah the event is. From what I read, usually 1 to 10 gives that, you know, uh, 
Jewish audiences become less accepting of the of the big numbers. Okay, so you do the six hundred thousand by ten gives you six million, which is a truly biblical Shoah. And so you know when you have rabbis explaining that this Shoah took place, they use the concept of Guzma to create the number. Okay, and that's that's how they it's it's that six million claim. So they took the six hundred thousand from Egypt that left with Moses and then they multiply it by a scale. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Now there's some other um, symbolism in the number six. Okay. If from, from Shabbat.org, you look at the letter of light. Okay. And it says six also represents completion because something that is surrounded on all its six sides, north, south, east, west, above and below is complete. Similarly, we find that when the Jewish people left the land of Egypt, God surrounded them with six clouds of glory. The number six also signifies the 600,000 Jews, men aged 20 to 60, who left Egypt. It additionally represents the Torah. Uh, There are 600,000 letters of the Torah. And if one letter of the Torah is missing or broken or cracked, God forbid, the entire Torah scroll is declared not kosher unfit to be read okay so that's an interesting that's in in ties all in right so the number six is significant and then you hear uh which is also interesting the number six is usually associated with saturn okay and this is what we're talking about saturn versus hebrew which is very interesting that's a whole nother discussion for another day and then there's another book uh, called Breaking the Spell by Nicholas Kohlerstrom. Okay, and he uh, ref- he did some uh, research and he found that publications and speakers had referred to the death or persecution of 6 million Jews at least 166 times before the end of World War II. So there's a lot of mention in this 6 million number. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump ahead and then we're going to dive back. So let's jump to 1979. There's this German uh, historian named uh, Dr. Martin Brosnat. And he was like one of the biggest Third Reich studies guys at the time. And he said that the six million number was uh, no was more of a symbolic figure rather than one that has been substantiated by solid demographic research. And then he he backed it up by saying in in then in 1991, um, uh, the German mainstream uh, publishing house um, also started saying, you know, doing some research on this on this number. So then there's this gentleman named Wolfgang Benz. He and his colleagues, okay, they were calculating the, the Jewish population number totally wrong. They simply took the number of Jews that were in Europe before World War II and then took the number after World War II. And that is doesn't make any sense because think about how they were scattered throughout Europe, to America, to Palestine, all right? They were scattered throughout that area at that time. So 
that number doesn't make much sense. So that's that's one way of calculation that you can prove is wrong right away. That doesn't that doesn't hold any weight. But then you start looking at okay, where did this number come from? So you go to I, we went to the Nuremberg trial, um, Nuremberg Tribunal, right? The military tribunal they did in 1945, and and you start looking at some of the the testimony there. And there was a secret German Secret Service agent um, named Wilhelm Hodel. And he said that Adolf Eichmann told me that in various extermination camps, some 4 million Jews had been killed while 2 more million perished in other ways. Okay, there's one number. And and again, Eichmann was a big, big into this 6 million number also. Um, there's this guy, this other German officer who worked with Eichmann on deporting Jews. Um, and he said at the Nuremberg trial that Eichmann said... Um, he would leap in leap laughing into his grave because the feeling that he had 5 million people on his conscience that would be for him a uh, solace of extraordinary satisfaction or a source, sorry, of, of extraordinary. I mean, this guy's just sick, but here's where it gets interesting. And you start wondering if it's a little bit of propaganda because a Soviet propagandist, Ilya Ehrenberg wrote, in uh, some Soviet newspaper called the Soviet uh, War News on December 22nd, 1944. Yet she said, uh, in regions they seized, the Germans killed all the Jews from the old folk to infants in arms. Ask any German prisoner why his fellow countrymen annihilated 6 million people and he will reply quite simply, why? They were Jews. Now, the, the question is, though, how could she have known that 6 million had been killed before any Allied soldiers had even entered Germany or German territory? Like, this doesn't make any sense. So that's one that I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of, and that's what I'm, we're digging into here. What is this? Is this, are these legitimate stories or is this propaganda to push a narrative? And not not the Holocaust, the pre World War One numbers. So then we're talking 1943, which is World War Two. In the Canadian Jewish Review, uh, Doctor Harry J. Stein said two million Jews have already done to death. Six million in mid Europe are sentenced to die. Now, how does he know that in 1943? That, I mean that to ju- just pick that number randomly, and it just so happens to 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 come to fruition. I mean that guy's got to play the lottery because that's amazing. So let's keep going on. Cumberland, Maryland, nineteen forty-three. The Nazis set out in the beginning to destroy whole peoples. They expected to obliterate from the earth not less than six million Jews as the beginning. Again, there we go. The six million number, nineteen forty-three, early March, nineteen forty-three. Okay. All right, so let's go 1940. We're going to keep working our way back in time. Palm Beach Post, the day that the France, okay, this is the day France surrendered to the German Wehrmacht. Doom of European Jews is seen if Hitler wins. Okay, which, you know, it's it's like, uh-oh, if it's coming if Hitler wins. And this is 1940, guys. This is... This is the beginning of the war. This there'd be no mention of any plans of extermination, you know, anything at this point. The final solution had not come about. 
So let's go back to 1939 to the New York Times, which I mentioned before. This is nine months before the war even started. Okay, a headline. Masaryk to work for the Zionist cause. Okay, and in this article, it goes on and on. There's this rabbi that's quoted. And he says that he has his own agenda. And that's to, to encourage the Jews to emigrate from Europe. You know, he said, you know, but in that context, it would be impossible to evacuate 6 million Jews. Again, 6 million. Why 6 million? There were more than 6 million Jews in Europe. So, I, yeah, I don't. So let's go back. The 1936 Peel Commission, formed by the British government, was investigating the causes of Arab unrest in Palestine, which at the time was under British control. In that context, Jewish leaders were also hurt, some of whom advocated the formation of a Jewish autonomous area in Palestine or even an independent state. The 1937 Peel Commission report concluded as follows. Okay? Partition of Palestine offers a possibility of finding a way through the difficulties of possibly obtaining a final solution of the Jewish problem which does justice to the rights and aspiration of both Arabs and Jews and discharges the obligations undertaken towards them 20 years ago to the fullest extent that is practicable in the circumstances of the present time. So here again, this is 1936. So he's mentioning a 1917 tra like tragedy that took place to the Jews, or something between the Jews and the Arabs, right? I mean, this is just, it's its starting to look at like, this was all for one purpose. So then you go to an article published in the London Times in 1936. The headline is The Jewish Case, okay? So there's this doctor, Chaim Weissman. He spoke of six million unwanted unfortunates in Eastern Europe who were condemned to be penned up in places where they could not live. Even those in Western Europe were now threatened. Second was the problem, uh, was the world problem created by the presence of these six million people without a future, whose condition was a threat to Europe. A certificate permitting emigration to Palestine was regarded as a certificate of freedom. So he's basically, this is Zionism 101, right? Let's get Israel a homeland. Let's get the Jews to Palestine. Forget about the Palestinians. You know, and this is the poor old, you know, it's amazing how they pulled this off. They're making a lot of this up apparently because the numbers just don't validate the claims. So the New York Times of 18, September 1835 Congress defends Polish Jews. Uh, the first world conference of the Federation of Polish Jews was being attended by 60 delegates from 18 countries representing 6 million Jews. So they're saying, I mean, they're only representing 6 million. There's more than that worldwide, supposedly. And, and the, as we keep digging back. So now we're going to jump back to the 1800s, Okay. And the mentions in 1800s. 
Okay, so the first mention that I found was in 1850. Uh, it was in a book published by Christian Society. Okay, it was trying to make Jews convert to Christianity. And, you know, we, what you see here is some of the numbers of the different people of, of that era. You know, and they're claiming that among the billion people living in that area, there were six million Jews. So, it's, we just keep seeing the number over and over. So, let's go to 1869, the New York Times, with a reference to a new Jewish weekly that there are now living about six million Israelites nearly one half of whom live in Europe. So this is saying that about 3 million live in Europe in 1869 and 6 million worldwide. Let's jump to 1881. Russian Tsar Alexander II was assassinated by political radicals. Since many of the political radicals in Russia were Jewish, pogroms against Jews flared up in Russia, lasting for more than a year. The New York Times reported on these pogroms, uh, for instance, uh, in 1882, Russian Jewish horrors, a nine-month record of raping, murder, and outrage. Okay, so, yeah. See what, because, so what happens then? 1882, in response, Tsar Alexander III tightened residential and professional limits for the Jews in Russia. Several towns and provinces expelled their Jews, erroneously thinking that the Tsar had issued a case to expel them from Russia altogether. As a result, the Jews started emigrating from Russia by the thousands. And this is where we start seeing them leave Russia and move eastern. Or Western, sorry. They're going to start going into Europe. All right? So, in 1891, the New York Times was talking about the persecution of the Jews in Russia some more when it said Russia's population of 5 million to 6 million Jews. Um, it said about 6 million persecuted and miserable wretches. Which, I mean... These people at that time, man, they did not bite their tongue. During the reign of Alexander III, Russia wanted to get rid of its Jews, but no country would accept them. With no place to go, Jewish lobby groups were looking for a way out. Now, that is a key statement there. They had no way out of Russia. They needed sympathy, they felt, to be accepted elsewhere. Well, gee, what do you think about mass extinction? That's a pretty, uh, you know, that'll that'll touch at the heartstrings there, make you want to help out. I mean, if we think what's going on in Ukraine right now is uh, is anything, you know, compared to what we're talking about here, you're out of your mind. And think about all the emotion tied up in that. So think about what they're doing here. This is emotional provocation, right? They're hitting at that heart. They're going for the emotional propaganda. So, uh, in, in 1903, April 1903, over three-day period, an anti-Jewish pogrom occurred in the Russian town of Kieshnev 
on uh, May 16th, the New York Times reported uh, more details of the Kishinev massacre. Toward the end of the article, you see that uh, that the we charge the Russian government with responsibility for the Kishinev massacre. We say that it is steeped to the eye in the uh, guilt of this Holocaust. So there's the mention of it. So long as a civilized government brands 5 million people as a perilous pest in which must slowly be annihilated, so long as it baser subjects will think themselves justified in accelerating the process of extermination with knives, axes, and hatchets. Think about that. They are fueling the fire here. <laughs> and this is what the media does. So on May 20th, the New York Times report, how could this country, how this country should regard Russia? Okay. And they're referencing the massacre again. And they say this barbaric Holocaust with a capital H. So they're mentioning the Holocaust in 1903. Okay, so we start looking at these numbers and it's like, I don't know, you know, where does all this come from? So we start digging some more and, you know, you look over and over and the New York Times, again, you know, you start seeing two things, okay? This this drive for fundraising for the Jewish uh, cause and this threat of extermination, okay? So we, we go, jump ahead to 1905 and you see the headline in the New York Times, Carnegie gives 10,000 for Russian relief because the Jews were being exterminated, <laughs> okay? We'll drop up, move ahead to, or drop back to 1904. Zangwell hire to aid Jewish colony scheme. Jewish lobbyists are reportedly pipe dreaming about Britain handing over the Jews some colony in Africa. Okay, so 1904, you're starting to see they're looking for the state. And it says England's offer of land in South Africa. Mr. Zangwell's mission is to arouse interest in the proposed scheme to colonize the Jews on a land that the British government has offered to set aside for them in British East Africa. Okay, there you're seeing it, guys. This is a play to get land, it appears. Let's go to 1905 and an article from, uh, yeah, it's it. They were so supportive of these Russian revolutions, okay, and they said the end of Zionism, maybe you know, from the failed 1905 Russian Revolution, and uh. You know, it was a failed coup attempt, a putsch, as they call it. And, you know, there was a, a Jewish preacher that was quoted as saying, a free and a happy Russia with its six million Jews would possibly mean the end of Zionism. You know, you know so in other words, if uh, a revolution would liberate Russia, the Jews would get lucky and wouldn't have to leave. How convenient. You know, and notice Russia's always the bad guy, guys, over and over and over throughout history. Russia is always the bad guy in the in the news. 1905, there's a headline. Uh, good luck with this name. 
Poby Donotsnevo, I don't know, resigns, okay? And supposedly from 1890 to 1902, this gentleman uh, caused 6 million Jews to be expelled from Russia. Well, <laughs> that doesn't add up because they're talking just in the quota uh, above. That was from 1905. And they were saying that there were 6 million Jews in Russia. So, I mean, guys, this, it's all propaganda here. But it's amazing the amount of it and, and, and who was pushing it. And we'll start to dig into that here as we dig deeper. So you get to uh, Dr. Paul Nathan's view of the Russian massacre from 1906. Startling, condition, uh, startling reports of the condition and future of Russia's 6 million Jews. It indicates that the Russian government's uh, studied policy for the quote-unquote solution of the Jewish question is systematic and murderous extermination. Where did we hear that? The final solution. That's a World War II term. No, no, no. This is coming out in 1906. 1906. Almost 40 years before. 35 for sure before World War II. 1910, the headline, Many Jews Flee from Russia. Okay? April of 1910. Russian Jews, sad plight. It states, you know, there's six million souls are subject to systematic, relentless, quiet grinding down. Now, what does that mean? Quiet grinding down. That's so ambiguous. It doesn't mean anything, but it tugs at you. It gives you, it puts an image in your head of something bad happening. Okay. Now, here's here's where now the Catholic Church starts getting involved. Churches in plea to czar for justice in 1911 from the New York Times. Okay. The six million Jews of Russia are singled out for systematic oppression and for persecution by due law of process. Or or due process of law. Sorry, I'm a little dyslexic today. Uh, Let's move ahead. In December of 1911, the New York Times had a huge full-page article by Herman Bernstein uh, with the headline, Condition of Jews in Russia, Worst in History. Okay? So it's talking about how oppressed the Jews are in Russia. And, you know, of course, they got to throw the buzzwords in there. And here's the quote. The Russian government has numerous other methods by which it intensifies the oppression of the Jews and by which it is making 6 million Jews a people economically exhausted, a people without any rights at all. I mean, guys, this is just a bleak picture they're setting up here. And they've been doing it for a decade now. This same picture and this same threat of these same 6 million. But we don't see any justification of it. Where's the violence? Where's the bloodshed? It seems like this is a a public war. A war of the airwaves, so to speak. We'll go to the American Jewish Yearbook. From 1911-1912, the position of our Jewish co-religionists in Russia grows increasingly deplorable. Russia has, since 1890, adopted a deliberate plan to expel or exterminate 6 million of its people. Again, they're, they're, again, they're pushing since 1890. 
and this is written in 19, so over 22 years, they've threatened and adopted policies. But where's the action? They haven't done anything. Okay? So it's interesting though. After they get rid of the Romanovs, okay? After Tsar Nicholas is uh, assassinated, murdered, him and his whole family, in 1917, all of a sudden, Russia's no longer the bad guy. And they switch over to target Germany, okay? Who's allied with the Ottomans, <laughs> you know? And uh, and so what, what? why do they need the Ottomans? The Ottomans would be needed to liberate Palestine, okay? The British can't do that. The French can't do that. That's too obvious. The Ottomans would have to do it, okay? That's that's what's interesting right here. You start seeing the picture unfold as to what is the goal here. The goal is to create a Jewish state. And they're willing to do whatever they need to to make it happen. So between World War One and World War II, um, you know, Poland was harsh. You know, they put heavy ethnic pressure on all Polish minorities. Uh, yeah, all non-Polish minorities. Okay, they suffered heavy discrimination. Uh, you know, heavy persecution. And it, said, it goes as far to say with the intent to quote-unquote convince them to immigrate. Which means threaten, you know, harass, stalk. Um, but isn't that ironic? Because what are the Jews doing to the Palestinians in Israel today? The same thing, right? They're 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 quote unquote convincing the Palestinians to emigrate. Really interesting, really. And so, you know, the Jews got this bad treatment. You know, they the the Polish did not want them there, apparently. You know, so they're going to kick them out. So the New York Times, again, accused Polish of anti-Jewish persecution in many articles. You know, but yet they were silent about any persecution suffered by the Germans, the Lithuanians, the Ruthenians, the Ukrainians. Or the Slovaks in Poland. It was just about the Jews. Which is what we're talking about, guys, in, in the news, right? With this, That's how this ties into the whole Russia thing. How come it's such a tragedy and outrage when Russia starts, quote-unquote, bombing the Ukraine or invades the Ukraine, but when the United States does that to Iraq, to Syria, to Afghanistan, to... Yemen, to Somalia, to name a country, insert name here, of places that they just go and they drone strike with no repercussions whatsoever. What's the difference? There is none. You're on one team and you think that team is good. The other team is orange man bad, right? And that's what this is coming down to. This is how they play the game, divide and conquer. Use emotion to get you on their side. Um, so let's go back. Okay, so there's a 1919 report about alleged anti-Jewish pogroms in Poland. 
that were throughout the New York Times. But it was interesting because something changed. It has been pointed out that some of these reports may have originated with German propagandists or may have been exaggerated by them with the obvious purpose of discrediting Poland with the Allies in hope that Germany might be the gainer thereby. Germany might have assisted in spreading these stories, may have invented them, although it would have been a cruel deception to writing the hearts of great multitudes of people in order to gain such an end. Let's read that again. Think about this. Although it would be a cruel deception to wring the hearts of great multitudes of people in order to gain such an end. That's what they're doing, people. They are just tugging at your heartstrings, the emotional side, because they know you do not rationally think. You think emotionally nowadays, especially nowadays. And this is obvious in 1919, they were doing it too. So there's a communist putsch or a coup in 1918. Brutal civil war raging in Russia, right? But who was the war and who was on what side? You had the Reds, who were the communists, okay? And then on the other side, you had the counter-revolutionary, the Whites, okay? Who were, They were mostly loyal to the monarchy. You know, since, you know, the Jews hated the monarchy for the most part, the czars, um, they dominated the ranks of the Reds. Okay? So what happened? Now the whites, the monarchy, their anti-Jewish feelings skyrocket, right? Because they feel like they've been betrayed. They didn't do anything to these Jews. There was no persecution. There was no extermination. But for some, because they didn't get what they wanted, now, now's the time. So let's go to 1919, New York Times. Ukrainian Jews aim to stop pogroms about massacres against the Jews committed by anti-Semitic gangs and by counter-revolutionary units, right? So now these, these white groups are going around just beating Jews. According to the article, 127,000 Jews had already been killed in pogroms. And all 6 million Jews were threatened to be next. Now, the number 127 was never substantiated. Okay? <laughs> There's no documentation of it whatsoever. Now let's go. Next quote. This fact that the population of 6 million souls in Ukraine, Ukraine and in Poland have received notice through and by word that they are going to be completely exterminated. What? Ukraine doesn't like Jews? Oh. Now you're starting to see the picture because the group that is in charge right now, they are nationalists, white nationalists for the most part. They hate Russians. As soon as... Uh, they took over. They made Russian the L Russian language illegal in Ukraine. Okay, 
These guys are not these, you know, saints that the news is making you out to be with the, you know, the uh, actor, comedian, cock playing, piano playing president out there in playing war. I mean, come on, guys. If you can't see through that, that's that's just theater at its finest. Okay, so let's move on here. 1922, the New York Times. South Russian Jews raised strong army. Um, they raised their own militia of 500,000 soldiers in the, in the Soviet Union to fight against anti-Jewish gangs and counter-revolutionary insurgents and to protect their lives and interests of 5 million of their race in Russia. So there's still 5 million living there, 1922. So this number that we heard in the 1890s of 6 million Jews being exterminated, well, there's still 5 million. Granted, population changes, I get that. But think about this. New York Times article, 1921. Begs America save 6 million in Russia. Okay? They're saying that massacres are being threatened. And if the power of the Soviet regime changes, you know, there's imminent danger. It says, Russia's 6 million Jews are facing extermination by massacre as the famine is spreading and the counter-revolutionary movement is gaining and the Soviet's control is waning. Okay? And, you know, the author says, you know, he asks whether or not these claims of, of these extraordinary Jewish sufferings were made by Zionist pressure groups in the, in the, in the 1910s and 20s. Okay? Were they based on facts? Were they? Were these numbers based on facts or were, they, were these just being thrown out? You know, did the Jews in Central Europe and Eastern Europe suffer more than average populace, right? Or was there just general suffering because you're in 1917 in World War I? And, and directly following World War I, it was no picnic over in Europe still. Okay, and he asks, was there indeed a Holocaust looming or going on in the years between 1915 and 1927? Using contemporary Jewish population statistics, the author briefly points out that the worldwide Jewish population was growing much faster during the and shortly after World War I than the other religious and or ethnic groups who lived in the same countries. Okay? So if you're seeing mass extermination, why are the population numbers growing faster than anyone else? Okay, 1916, the London Telegraph, atrocities in Serbia, 700,000 victims from our own correspondent Rome. It says the government of the Allies have secured evidence and documents which will shortly be published proving that Austria and Bulgaria have been guilty and of horrible crimes in Serbia where the massacres committed were worse than those perpetuated by Turkey in Armenia. Women and children and old men shut up in churches uh, by the Austrians and either stabbed with a bayonet or suffocated by means of asphyxiating gas. In one church in Belgrade, 3,000 women, children, and old men were thus suffocated. Yeah. Now, 
Go find that in any history book or anywhere in history. There's not one historian that claims the Austrians took part in any such thing in Serbia during World War I. So it was nothing but propaganda by the British government and the British media. You see now, not only is America involved, not only is Britain involved, you're going to see France involved. Okay, guys, it's all the same players over and over and over again. But just, Okay, so here, here's in the same day in the London Telegraph. Okay? Five days before the Jewish owned and, and uh, uh, no, no, no. Let's see. Okay, here it is. Uh, Germans murder 700,000 Jews in Poland traveling gas chambers. Uh, yeah, more than 700,000 Polish Jews have been slaughtered by the Germans with the greatest massacre in the world history. So that's a big number right there, 700,000, okay? But there's no, again, we're running into the difficulty. So let's go back to 1880 here, okay? And this is where we start looking at they start bringing Germany into the fold. And we talked about that before, about how they're they're intertwining. They're, they're basically flip-flopping. Is it Germany? Is it Russia? Is it Germany? Is it Russia? And it depends who the leaders of the countries are at the time. When the Tsar was in control, it was Russia. As soon as the Bolsheviks got control, all of a sudden it switched to Germany. But what you're going to see is back in the 1880s, um, you're going to see them pointing the finger at Germany again. Okay, so the war, which has uh, for some time raged in Germany between the natives and the Jews, seems rather to increase than to diminish in its intensity. It is something more than a popular prejudice. It is a national passion and ableist. Most dignified and most learned men have ranged themselves on either side. To us here, it seems very strange that a contest of races would be going on in a land with such intelligence and intellectual pretension. And in the year 1882, the crime of the Jews appears to be comprehended chiefly by their financial prosperity. No sin is as great as success in the eyes of the non-successful. The charges made that uh, uh, of the 600 Israelites in the empire, hardly any engage in agricultural or mercantile pursuits. But... They control trade, rule the money markets, and are eating up the country with their avarice and usury. They are not material different from the rest of the human family. If the Jews in Germany were poor, they would not be attacked. But they are, many of them, very rich, and that is their offense. Okay, so now they're going to start playing the, the, the rich card. Okay, well... They can't play the woe is me if these people aren't aren't being starved and, and suffering in peril. Okay, now let's, we're going to do a little flip here and we're going to bring Mr. Jacob Schiff into the mix. Okay, and this is where, guys, it starts to come clear. Now, Jacob Schiff, a little background on him. He was involved with J.P. Morgan. He was involved with Rockefeller. He was involved with the Warburgs. And all of these are big time bankers and they all have one thing in common. They push the Federal Reserve. Jacob Schiff was big in the creation of the Federal Reserve. Big 
in the creation of the federal income tax. And he was big in the creation of the Israeli state. He was hand in hand with Lord Balfour on the Balfour Declaration. Okay, so let's look at it. He, he Let's give a little background on him, all right? I'll give his story here. He came uh, over from the banking house Kuhn and Loeb. Okay, and and they were German Jewish brothers who made their fortune selling uniforms and blankets and stuff to the north during the Civil War, and then they moved to uh, New York in in like the late 1860s or something, open and started their bank. Um, and and Schiff actually ran their bank. Um, he was from Frankfurt, Germany, and had married Loeb's daughter, okay, uh, Teresa. So. Interestingly enough, Schiff's ancestors have been linked to the Rothschilds. And Schiff worked in, you know, in the banking houses in both Frankfurt and New York and at the Warburg Bank in Hamburg. So there's the Warburgs again um, before he came over and started working in Wall Street. And his thing was railroad financing, okay? Um, And he married his daughter at the age of 19 off to Felix Warburg. Uh, you know, from the Warburg family. So they all, you're starting to see it. Not only do they get in together, but then they start inbreeding, to marrying together. Okay. Now here's something interesting. Paul Warburg, okay, who had never voted in an American presidential election, was appointed to the Federal Reserve Board by Woodrow Wilson, the biggest scumbag in American history, in 1914. So someone who didn't vote in America was put in charge of our Federal Reserve Banking System board, or was appointed to the board. Think about that, people. Is this about America, or is this about the bankers? Okay. Uh, so, you know, Russia's having a tough time because they're in the early 1900s. They're going through the Russo-Japanese War. And, uh, you know, the, they say that the Jews are, the Russian Jews are taking some heat. Um, so, you know, what do the Americans do? They get a million dollars and donate it over. Okay. And so Schiff is the guy who handles the money and he hated the czar. Okay. Because of the bankers, the bank, he would, the bankers, he's Rothschild, the Tsar did not like the Rothschild banks, would not let them in. That's why Russia was public enemy number one. Okay? So Schiff lobbied directly to President Roosevelt, Teddy, okay, to conduct a Rough Rider assault against Russia. Okay? And, and, and I mean, and he also was financing Japan against Russia. I mean, he was doing everything he could to destroy Russia. All right. So we get to, we move ahead a little bit. Um, Yeah. So then they're, they're thrilled, obviously, when the Russian government is overthrown. Um, And then, you know, it's one of these where they just He's just such an interesting guy. So we'll look at the Amer. He's in the American Jewish community, okay? American Jewish Committee, all right? 
And here's the purpose of this committee is to prevent infringement of the civil and religious rights of the Jews and to alleviate the consequences of persecution in the event of a threatened or actual denial or invasion of such rights or when conditions calling for the relief of such calamities affecting Jews exist anywhere, correspondence may be entered into those familiar with the situation. And if persons on the spot feel themselves able to cope with the situation, no action need be taken. If, on the other hand, they request aid, steps shall be taken to furnish it. Okay? So Schiff starts organizing these meetings, right? And setting up these committees, but he had to do it discreetly. Because he was afraid that, you know, these, uh, that his cloak would be unveiled, right? How these bankers and these financial empires were really directing the governments, okay, of, of many, many nations now. And this is the early 1900s, okay? Um, so... He's talking about their their lot the American Jewish Committee's lobbying techniques. He said they lavish expenditures of money, public speaking campaigns, and extensive distribution of propaganda and courting publications by playing off Rep- Republicans against Democrats. <laughs> the American Jewish Committee cleverly and boldly employed its network and of national contacts and supported politicians such as Woodrow Wilson who were hungry for votes in the 1912 election. Oh, it's just unbelievable. Okay, so now here's where Schiff starts directly influencing politics. Okay, so 1911, Secretary of State Knox told President Taft that ending normal relations with Russia because... uh, uh, she excluded the American Jews for her stake would uh, stultify the traditional policy in the matter of immigration. Despite Taft's op- opposition to the abrogation, the American Jewish Committee pressured the U.S. House of Representatives to pass a not legally binding resolution on this by a vote of 301 to 1. Schiff bragged that the abrogation victory was the greatest victory for the Jews since Napoleon granted them civil rights. All right, you're starting to see it now, guys. It's all starting to come together. All right, now we're going to get into the Balfour Declaration, which was dated November 2nd, 1917. Okay, although it had been, they'd been in the works for years. You've heard them before. They were talking about wanting a homeland in, in, in Europe or uh, uh, Africa, Eastern Africa. They'll take it anywhere. They're just looking for land. They're looking for their spot to set up, okay? But they were smart about it. They did not use the words national home. Or the new words national home are used instead of nation, okay? To kind of dispel the fears of the Arab, the Muslims, and the Christians that were already living there, that they would be expelled. So <laughs> Lord Balfour... All right, after he writes this, writes a letter to Lord Rothschild, and he says, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by by his cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, 
and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or rights and status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful to you if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. <clears throat> A month later, okay, after this, December of 1917, the British army enters Jerusalem. Does it make sense now? So after returning to the United States, Dr. Wise met with President Wilson in 1919, who approved uh, of a Jewish commonwealth in Palestine under British rule. Woodrow Wilson again. Wise was quoted on page one of the New York Times in 1919 saying, the rebuilding of Zion will be the reparation of all Christendom for the wrongs done to the Jews. You see this? There's the divide again, guys. They're going to blame all Christians for this. Interesting. And and remember uh, Chaim Weissman before, he, he's credited with making the famous prediction in the early 1920s, okay, that Palestine would become as Jewish as England is English. How crazy is that, guys? 1920s, he called this. All right. So a quote from Felix Warburg, who is the chairman of the Joint Distribution Committee in 1919. He says the Jews were the worst sufferers in the war, World War I. The successive blows of contending armies have all but broken the back of European Jewry and have reduced tragically unbelievable poverty, starvation, and disease about six million souls or half the Jewish population on earth. In Europe today, or in Europe there are today more than 5 million Jews who are starving or on the verge of starvation, and many in the grip of virulent typhus epidemic. Okay? It's, uh, it's amazing. So now let's look into the scheme a little deeper. So what's happening here? They're collecting all of this massive amount of charity, right? In the name of the Jews. These, you know, the American Jewish Committee and all these different committees are collecting all this money. Well, what are they doing with that money? They're lending it to the Jewish people, but at interest. Okay? The money was donated to them, but they're going to lend it out and charge these people interest on it to get back. Think about how devious and disgusting that is. So there was a Chicago conference of the American Jewish Relief Committee in 1921. So you have Adolf Krauss and uh, Lehman from Lehman Banks. So Krauss says, I would like to ask the speaker a question. I understood you say that these banks will loan out money, uh, will charge no more in the way of interest initially than if we had administered the cost of carrying on these banks. Did I understand correctly? Lehman says, yes. Krauss says, if the initial cost will be 10%, will these people be charged 10%? Lehman says, I have said that we will not allow them to charge amount more than will be necessary. 
<laughs> Kraus calls him out. You're not answering my question. Blayman, yes, I will answer it. I should have said that we will not allow them to charge more. I did not mean to give the impression that we will not allow them to charge as much as may be necessary to carry on with the administration administrative charges. In other words, I believe about 10% will be necessary to carry on with the administrative charges. Kraus says, I protest against charging these people 10% interest. Lehman says, I want to emphasize the fact uh, that the Re- Reconstructive Committee, the Joint Distribution Committee, will under no circumstances charge 10% or any substantial proportion of that. The Reconstruction Committee in Romania is charging to the Federation of Cooperatives, making these loans 2.5%. You can't expect these people, whom we are giving the money to assume all the costs of administration, they are willing to take some risk of loss on administration. But where the cost is, say 6 to 8% for administration, it would be hard to, for them to expect to carry that themselves. Now, in Poland, I should say that the cost of administration would be that. The Joint Distribution Committee is only going to receive 3 or 4%. So see, they're playing the game already. It, they're going to milk for it for as much as it is. So Kraus comes back right at him. What is the difference to the man who pays the interest, whether the bank in Romania receives the interest or in Poland or the Joint Distribution Committee? My opinion is that if any interest is charged, it should be limited. So it should not cost the person who pays it more than 5%. If we are going to do charity at the rate of 10% interest and over, let us stop. It is no charity at all. It's not charity, guys. It's all a scam. The Red Cross, all this stuff. Salvation Army. They're all money laundering scams. Okay? 1923, Jewish Relief Committee of the uh, Joint Distribution was reporting that 1.165 million stray children wandering in Ukraine. <laughs> they made further astounding claim that, that 1.6 were wandering in Ukraine because $3 million in pledges had not been paid. What? I mean, that's blackmail almost. Right? I mean, that's just so deceptive and oh, dirty. New York Times reported that the committee stated that there is still time to stand uh, to round up these 1.165 million homeless children and reclaim them from the fate of savages. There is time to snatch them back from the first onslaught of winter in Russia, even now creeping over the hills. But it will require every dollar of cash pledged to the program of relief and now withheld. Unless the money can be had at once, it will be too late. And there it is again, guys. It always revolves around money. They don't care about the people. They care about their cut. All right. So we're almost there. We got 1926 is an interesting year, okay? Because you start getting the president of the U.S. Uh, of the U.S. Uh, American Jewish Committee, Louis Marshall. He comes out and says there are millions of Eastern European Jews in Poland, and an equal number in other countries who are passing away, and all of them will disappear unless we rise to the emergency, forget everything else, and come to the rescue. Okay. There are 5 million Jews in Central and Eastern Europe facing starvation. 5 million Jews are in desperate distress today. 2.25 million in Russia, 
2.25 million in Poland, 500,000 in uh, Bessarabia, Lithuania, and nearby countries. That's from the American Christian Fund in 1926, guys. There's all so now we're going on 1890 to 1926. Now we're going on 35 years of this. Donations began to increase in 1920 to 1925 to the committees. 1926 was also the year in which the most outrageous Jewish suffering stories of the 1920s were concocted. The stories of the 5 million starving in Eastern European Jews. Okay? So now we get to April, the New York Times. They start talking about the pathetic conditions of which millions of Jews are living in Poland, Bessarabia, Russia, and Romania. And as a result of post-war industrial economic depression added to the distress left by the war itself. The speakers appealed to America to salvage one half of the Jews of the world. They said that all the suffering and persecution to which the Jews had been subjected, subjected to in the past, all over the world, were nothing, nothing compared to the misery the Jews in Eastern Europe today, and that thousands have died from starvation and the diseases that will follow Famine like typhus and tuberculosis, and hundreds have committed suicide because they felt uh, their lot hopeless. Unless America goes to the rescue, it was declared, one million Jews in Poland and one million more in other countries affected will be wiped out by famine and pestilence and will disappear off the face of the earth. Guys, I mean, gaslighting. Right? We need your money now or these people are going to die. Give us your money or they're going to die. Now, now, now. And this is 35 years later. Same story, same song and dance. Lewis Marshall, American Jewish Committee. Again, at this very moment, there are literally millions of men, women, and children who have always led blameless lives who are industrious, thrifty, conscientious, abstinious, um, and provident who, without fault of their own, are moving to the very brink of destruction and annihilation, before whom gaunt famine stalks, who are threatened and pursued by bigotry and intolerance, and who are denied the opportunity of gaining a livelihood by abhorrent legislation and malignant hostility. The scene of the Jewish tragedy is laid in Poland and its several divisions, including Galatia, in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Romania, Russia, the victims are the Jews of these countries, numbering more than 7 million souls. They are emaciated, ragged, debilitated by physical deterioration resulting from hunger and disease and mental uh, solitude. Their eyes are downcast. There is scarcely a gleam of hope in their hearts. They are on the verge of despair and many of them have given way to it so that on every side one beholds the suicide of desperation. All this has come after the war is over, after they have passed through famines, after they have been refugees, after they have lost frequently the head of household as a result of the war, after in some of these countries there have been pogroms, and people have been murdered in cold blood. After all, that they possessed is gone, that their wealth taken from them, and that these things have not been enough. 
but those that I have just described are continuing and occurring at this hour, at this moment while I'm speaking. There are millions of Eastern European Jews in Poland and an equal number in other countries who are passing away and all of them will disappear unless we rise to the emergency, forget everything else and come to the rescue. Guys, that's a State of the Union address, right? It's just a propaganda speech. Here's one from David Brown, okay? He is the national chair of the 1926 drive in Detroit, Michigan. 900,000 Jews in Poland alone were on the verge of starvation and that this was nearly one-third of the entire Jewish population in Poland. There have been more suicide among Jews in Poland alone than have ever occurred there in five centuries. However, there has been a rift in the clouds of Russia due to the fact that the Russian government recognizes that the very foundation of their economic existence depends on agriculture. It has hundreds of millions of fertile acres. Russia has put an end to private ownership of land, but it recognizes the right of anybody who desires to work upon the land to engage in agricultural pursuits and has made no discrimination between Jew and non-Jew in that regard. So he's going to say, that's bullshit. Russia has no prejudice. Where's this coming from? Okay, so let's go to November, D.C., claiming that one-third of the population is in distress. In some parts of Europe, the death rate among the Jewish babies is almost 100%. Thousands of Jews are dying of want right now. Hundreds of thousands are confronted by the most painful death hunger. Unless help is given, five million Jews will starve. This does not mean they will die immediately, but that they will linger with lack of sufficient food, and will die next week, some next month, and each succeeding month, unless relief comes in one way or the other. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, you look here, and and the American Christian Fund's involved as well. They sent a letter to 150,000 Christian leaders around the country, you know, Uh, letting them know that 5 million Jews in Central Europe are facing starvation. They said, you know, we must realize American Jews cannot say, uh, we must realize that American Jews cannot save all of them. Unless Christians help, many will perish. American Christians have never realized nor understood the sufferings of the Jews in Central and Eastern Europe. 5 million Jews are in desperate distress today. 2.25 million in Russia, 2.25 million in Poland, 500,000 in Bessarabia, Lithuania, and nearby countries. Men, women, and little children are suffering in, in misery. They are hungry all the time. Since 1914, the four horsemen have ridden grimly over half the Jewish population of the world war pestilence, famine, and always death. Wow. But I'm sure there were no Christians that were suffering at this time that the Christian group could have helped. But they're going to, you know, make a pledge to go help the Jews. And there's nothing wrong with that. I have no problem with that. But again, it's that it's that alternate agenda. This doesn't seem pure here, right? They're using propaganda. They're bringing in the four horsemen. Pestilence, famine, death, right? But there's no evidence of this. Granted, it was a dark time all over Europe. 
Yes, there was people that were hungry, but it wasn't just the Jews. So why is this huge case of this giant Jewish um, extermination? Like there's no Christians, there's no regular people that are just starving, only the Jews. That's where I, I don't understand these numbers. So uh, here, here's an interesting one. 1940, Dr. Neh- Nehum Goldman, chairman of the Administrative Committee of the World Jewish Congress, said in an interview, six million Jews in Europe are doomed to destruction. If the victory of the Nazis should be final, the chances for mass immigration and resettlement of European Jewry seems to be remote, and European Jews face the danger of physical annihilation. Even the 4 million Jews under Soviet rule, although free from racial discrimination, are not safe in the event of final Nazi victory. Okay, so you're seeing it. And and Paul Warburg is out there. He's waving that propaganda flag. He's like, widespread massacres and pogroms resulted in the murder of several hundred thousand Jews. We're talking 1919, 1920 now, guys. Where is this in in the reporting? You know, why is no one reporting about this? It's just being quoted by these Jewish groups that have something to gain by this. Okay? On the other hand, it witnessed a phenomenal revival of Jewish activity accompanied by intense social strife, by a renaissance of cultural and economic theories incident to the universal movements of national self-determination and a recognition of racial minority rights. You know, he, he claimed there were, there were Ukrainian pogroms too, that where 200,000 Jew, Jews were killed by fire and sword. Okay, I mean, it's, it's just these, these tales over and over and over again. And it even went, you know, so we, Winston Churchill in 1922, before he became Winston Churchill, <laughs> the Winston Churchill, speaking to the British House of Commons on July 4th, 1922. Are we to keep our pledge to the Zionists made in 1917, talking about the Balfour Declaration, pledges and promises that were made during the war, they were made, not only on, not only on the merits, though I think the merits were considerable. They were made because it was considerable that they would be of value to us in our struggle to win the war. It was considered that the support which the Jews could give us all over the world, particularly in the United States and also in Russia, would be a definite palpable advantage. The Churchill paper, Churchill White Paper of 1922, while he was Secretary of State for the colonies, uh, he goes, so far as the Arabs are concerned, are partly based on exaggerated interpretations of the meaning of the Balfour Declaration, favoring the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. Unauthorized statements have been made to the effect that the purpose in view is to create a holy Jewish Palestine. Phrases have been uh, used such as Palestine is to become as Jewish as England is English. Right? There it is. Many of the leaders at the time, you know, they didn't see Palestine developing into a Jewish state. But you know what? Max Warburg, he saw Palestine as a possible sanctuary, right? A, a gift to mankind. And then Felix Warburg, 
You know, he financed the creation of the Institute of the Jewish Studies at the Hebrew University, where Lord Balfour presided over the founding, uh, yeah, founding ceremonies, April 1st, 1925. And here we go, Mr. Chaim Weissman again. He was the first president. And Albert Einstein named the chairman of Academic Council. So you see all these players coming together, all right? And what is it about? Let's go. Felix Warburg joined Lewis Marshall in setting up the Palestinian Economic Corporation with Felix as an honorary chairman to channel investment money into commercial and agricultural projects in Palestine. Felix's fantasies about a classless society purged of human frailty with farmers and artisans settling there was suggestive of the Jewish agro joint colonies in Russia. It's not going to happen, guys. You think the Palestinians are just going to open their arms and say, "Okay, take our land and we're going to we're going to have uh we're going to turn into an agro state." Guys, this is this is all fairy tales and lollipops. None of this is true. It's all bullshit to paint a, a rosy picture. Whereas what are they really doing? They're going in there. They're going to occupy and take over land and then force the people out. Okay. So we want to look at the the population statistics real quick. You know, one reference book in 1900, it gave the Jewish number at about 7.1, all right, million people, almost 7.2. The World Almanac in 1920 put the Jewish population at about 15 million. Okay, so, you know, here, here's some questions. And as you go back through this, we're going to start looking at these dates and were these real? Okay, so here, here's some questions. In 1882, was there a, a struggle for an, the annihilation of the Jews? We didn't see any proof. In 1903, did the Russian government decide that Jews must be annihilated so they underwent a process of extermination in this barbaric holocaust? We didn't see that. We heard about it. We didn't see any numbers. We didn't see any reports of it at the time. Just threats, claims, empty, empty claims. In 1905, was there a holocaust in which Jews must be exterminated? Not that we've ever heard about. In 1906, the Russian government's policy to solve, quote-unquote, the Jewish question by way of murderous extermination. Did we see that? Uh, nope. We saw it in Germany many years later, though. In 1911, had Russia adopted a plan to exterminate 6 million Jews? We don't see any proof of that. 1915, was there a Russian campaign of extermination against the Jews? Again, no proof. In 1919, now remember 1919, the Bolsheviks were in charge. So the Jews should have been all set. But yet the, it kept pushing. Because what did they say? They said if the regime would change, the Jews should be okay and they shouldn't even have to immigrate. So 1919, were 6 million Jews dying in this threatened Holocaust? Were 6 million Jewish souls going to be completely exterminated? Didn't happen there. In 1920, was it necessary to save 6 million Jews from extermination? 
again, we read about it a lot in the paper, but there was no nothing to back it up. In 1926, was the whole Jewish people dying, as we heard? Nope. In fact, their numbers were growing. So and we ask, the reason why we ask these, because you have to answer them. And what, you, what it just reveals to you is that this was a giant exaggeration and hyperbole. This giant propaganda campaign. And, and the fact is that prior to the communist revolution, Holocaust and extermination claims were exaggerations used to lobby for the Jews to go to the U.S. and to other countries to get them out of Russia. And ultimately for the creation of a Jewish homeland. And if they could do it along the way, a little regime change in Russia might help. If we could get rid of those pesky Romanovs, you know, and all their anti-Rothschild thoughts, everything would be okay. So, with that said, I will... uh, you know, I, I think we've hit on a lot of the key topics. You can go and, and go research those actual articles. Like I said, you know, you will see them from the 1800s all the way through World War II. There are articles out there. There's quotes out there. There's threats of holocausts, of, of death, of uh, devastation, famines. You know, the four horsemen are coming. But we didn't see it. And uh, an interesting thing that I also found is that, uh, you know, when we look at the number uh, of 6 million, even in the, in, in the new one, there's some interesting documents out there from the Red Cross that show different numbers. So... Again, am I am I saying that the Holocaust did not happen? No, I'm not denying it flat out. Lots of people died in World War II. Okay? This is addressing the claims of the first Holocaust, which was pre-World War II, pre-World War I, or during World War I, there was supposedly a Holocaust. Or at least that's what the papers were claiming. But I had never heard of it. So this, when I start seeing all these... Uh, newspaper articles talking about mass extermination. I mean, it, my ears went up and I'm like, I got I got to research this. So that's what I got for you guys. I mean, I hope you enjoyed it. It's something different. Um, but as you see, it it, it 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 ties in with now because A, you see the media was working right there with a purpose. It was propaganda. Who was driving the propaganda? The people who had money at interest. And now look at the Ukraine situation today. And what you see on the mainstream media, look at who makes the money, who benefits from this. Because my gas prices just raised 30 cents a gallon yesterday. Between yesterday and today, they went from $3.69 a gallon to $3.99 a gallon and they're saying that's because of Russia, which is bullshit. They're, it's an opportune time to use Russia, 
But this is all the failings of the administration. And this is what they do, guys. To get what they want, they're going to paint a picture for you. They're going to try and get to you emotionally. And to many weak-minded people, it works. Because they can't use discernment. They can't use cognitive dissonance. It kicks them right in the balls every time. Because anything that goes outside their beliefs or doesn't come directly from the black mirror, they don't believe it. It's not true. They have been indoctrinated. They're good little people. Servants of the realm. And that's all it is. So... It falls upon the rest of us to call them out on their bullshit. If we want anything to change, we have to invoke the change. And this is one of it, guys. You're starting to see it. History repeats itself. Massive campaign propaganda campaigns that don't benefit the people. They benefit the people at the top. The scammers. All right, And that's what we need to see here. What's happening to us right now is they are milking us with inflation and the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And if they have their way, there will be no middle class. There will be the haves and the have-nots. And they want most of us to be have-nots. If you ask our buddy Klaus Schwab, who says you will own nothing and you will love it. You will rent everything from the government. And they can shut it off at any time. All right, And this is what you have to fear, guys. Is the fact that they will use any means necessary to attain their goal. We saw that with the last two years. Alright. So with that, I'm going to end it here. As always, folks, stay strong. And question everything. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know 
for we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people, for I have complete confidence and the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors, for as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, Without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. 